Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad you're here at first service. I'm glad you're here if you're watching Ording Valley and Traditions online this morning. I'm just really glad that you're here, that you woke up. Whether you woke up because you set your alarm ahead or your cell phone just uh, was, was told by a satellite that it needed to wake you up at a different time, that's why you're tired. Some of you are like, that's why I don't feel very good this morning. Because it's a little, it's a little earlier this morning, but it's never too early to be with each other, to be with Jesus. If I have to be tired, I want to be tired with you guys. If I have to be grumpy, I want to be grumpy with you guys. No, I'm just kidding. Hopefully you're not too grumpy this morning. Get a little, get a little extra coffee and we'll be okay. But I'm glad we're here to get into the word this morning. We're going to continue with our series on the seven churches of Revelation, looking at what Jesus says to each one of them. He gives them advice as to how to be victorious according to Jesus' standards. How do we win at life? And there's a lot of definitions of success, aren't there? There's a lot of things out there that say this is how, how you find fulfillment, this is how you find joy, this is fi- how you find happiness. But Jesus actually knows how this works. He built it. He designed it. He created it, and he created you, and he knows how this works. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the, the sixth church, the church at Philadelphia, not Philadelphia on the East Coast, but the original Philadelphia in Asia Minor, a Greek-named city that means the city of brotherly love, as you might be aware. However, you're going to find that the church at Philadelphia was not experiencing a lot of brotherly love. And, and we'll see uh, how that works out for them. But I want, to, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you to think about for a moment, when was there a season in life when you were this close to giving up? Have you ever had one of those seasons, maybe, maybe health issues, and you just felt like, this is not, I'm not sure I want to live through this. It's, I, I feel so sick, so miserable. I know there's, there's some in our body today that are here as kind of a testimony of walking through that. Or maybe you were in a job that you were just miserable. It was hard. It was difficult. You didn't know, you didn't want to go to work one day after another. Some of you are like, yeah, that's me tomorrow morning. Um, and, and, or maybe it was a relationship and that every day you, you uh, woke up to a relationship that just was painful and difficult and abusive. But we face these difficult things in life, don't we? We face different circumstances that really put the pressure on us, that are, that are challenging to us, that make us wonder if life is even worth it. And that's a pretty heavy-duty thought. But I found that the more I get to know people, the more I find that that at some point or another in all of our lives is kind of an unavoidable circumstance that we will face situations that are so much bigger than us that we're not sure we can survive it. We're not sure we want to persevere through it. I was reminded as I was preparing this message of a season in ministry a few years ago when there was just a a lot of pressure on me and there were things going on in my personal life, some difficult things in my family and relationships. Um, But particularly in ministry, what our church was going through at that time, not this church, but when we were in ministry at another church, what our church was going through at that time was putting an immense amount of pressure on many of our staff and and particularly on me. And I remember in that season, I'm feeling some things that I don't normally experience otherwise. I remember, you know, having heart palpitations 
fairly regularly. I remember having these intense headaches that I would come home almost every night from work with just these, these, these uh, migraines. I would skip dinner, which is completely unnatural for me. Uh, I would skip dinner and just go straight to bed. My wife was concerned about me. I wasn't being the dad that I wanted to be. And I remember particularly when my alarm would go off every morning. Some of you hate your alarm just because you love your pillow. I hated my alarm because of what came after. And I remember my alarm would go off and I would, I would wake up and I would be hit with the fear of what I had to face that day. And, and I would at, at times just be, be overwhelmed with enough fear. I did not want to get out of bed. And I got in this habit over that season of time of often praying. It, my, the first thing that would come through my mind, the first words that would come out of my mouth is, Jesus, I need you to get me through today. I need you to get me through today. And that wasn't like a trite little Christian calendar type saying it really was my daily bread. I really needed a sense that God was with me, that I was not alone, that there was going to be a light at the end of this tunnel, that all of the frustration and the difficulty and the fear and the pain was actually going to be worth it. And there were moments I believed it was worth it and there were moments that I did not think it would be. And that season lasted about eight months. And at the end of that eight months, you know, things started to, to get better and some of that pressure was relieved and some of the, the things that, that were in the work started to come to fruition. And the result of that season were multiple incredible testimonies of how God had used me and others in people's lives in a difficult time. And many people had come to know the Lord and many people had grown in their faith. And I personally had grown in a new level of trust with Jesus that I hadn't known before. And so looking back on that season, I could say, wow, all of that pain, all of that difficulty, all of that stress, all of that frustration, all of those health issues I was, I was feeling, all of that was actually worth it. But in the moment, it sure didn't feel like it. I share that story because I want you to relate a little bit to what the church at Philadelphia was feeling. I think the church at Philadelphia was feeling a little bit of that same way. They were struggling. They were in difficult circumstances, as we'll hear about this morning. And I think that they were probably wondering if it was going to be worth it. Based on what Jesus has to say to them, he is encouraging them. He's showing them what's on the other side of their suffering. And I want you to hear this this morning because whether you are in a season right now, and I see faces around this room. I know some of you are in seasons like that right now. Or you will be at some point because we all face those times at different, different points. I want you to know that what Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia this morning, he is saying to you today. He's saying that to you. And so would you open with me to Revelation chapter 3 in your Bibles or your Bible apps, or you can read along with me on the screen but we're going to read through Jesus's entire letter to the church at Philadelphia, starting in verse seven. Jesus says this, he says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true. The one who has the key of David, what he opens, no one can close and what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. Yes, you have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. 
Look, and I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Hear that. What he says to Philadelphia, he's saying to all of the churches. He's saying to you and me today, and it's our responsibility to listen and to understand. And so Jesus introduces him to this church at Philadelphia. And he says, first of all, he says, hey, I am the one who is holy and true. I am the one who is pure and reliable in everything. And he says, and I hold this key of David. You know, the key of David was prophesied by Isaiah. And it's a messianic symbol of the one who would allow everyone into the kingdom of God. There was prophesied in the Old Testament a a descendant of David who would renew David's kingdom, but it would be in a way that would last forever. It would be an eternal kingdom and it would not be bound by political or geographical boundaries. And many people wondered how would that actually happen, but they knew that the Messiah was supposed to come and do that. And Jesus is saying here, I'm that guy. I have the key of David and that key opens the door to the kingdom of heaven. That means it's the key that removes the guilt of of our sin, the shame of our mistakes, the barrier that is between us and God that Jesus opened that door to remove that barrier and bring us into relationship with God that can never be taken away. And that's why he says, the doors that I open, nobody can close. When you come to know Jesus, when you accept that invitation to relationship, and he says, I have an eternal kingdom for you. I have eternal life for you. I have eternal joy for you. Yes, you'll make mistakes. And yes, there will be things that that make you wonder if you're really close to Jesus at times. But Jesus is saying, nobody can close that door on you. Nobody can take that away from you. And he also says, and the doors that I close, nobody can open. Have you ever had Jesus close a door for you? You thought, man, I know exactly what I'm doing with my life. I know exactly where I'm going. I know exactly what to do next. And then slam, a door closes and you're suddenly like, God, I had my plan all worked out. I thought we were in this together. And Jesus says, I have a different plan. Why don't we talk about this? That even happened to the apostle Paul. You know, there was multiple times in Acts where he says, God has closed this door, but he's opened this door. In fact, often in the New Testament, when doors are talked about that God is opening and closing, they're doors for ministry. They're doors for the gospel to be preached. They're doors for people who don't know Jesus to hear about him and get saved. And that will prove true for the Philadelphians. And so Jesus says, this is who I am. I'm in charge 
Nobody can, nobody can shut what I've opened. Nobody can open what I've closed. I'm the one in charge of the, the kingdom of heaven. And why does he say that? Because the Philadelphian church, much like the church at Smyrna, if you were with us a few weeks ago when we talked about Smyrna, was being persecuted by what Jesus calls a synagogue of Satan. And what he's referring to here are Jews who are not being faithful Jews. In fact, the most faithful Jews of all recognize Jesus as their Messiah, but you, Jesus would also say that Jews being faithful to Torah, to the, to the law and the prophets in the Old Testament are being faithful, but these Jews are not living up to even their own word. And the same was true in Smyrna. These Jews, who would later be criticized by the larger community of Jewish rabbis worldwide, the Jews at Philadelphia were known to choose money over faithfulness. They were known to choose prosperity and popularity over faithfulness. They were willing to kind of make spiritual deals. They were, they were willing to kind of combine what they believed about the God of the Old Testament with what their Greek and Roman neighbors believed about the gods of the day. You'll notice that there's been this theme throughout these churches in Asia Minor that in order to prosper economically and socially, they had to participate religiously and cultically with some of the religions of the day. And these Jews had already faced that test and failed it. They'd said, we can kind of work out a deal here. We can make this work. And because of that, they had risen to great power and prosperity in the church at Philadelphia. And they would be uh, spiritually condemned later by their own Jewish brothers for this syncretism. But in this season of Philadelphia, they were using their political power and they were using their economic power to enforce the same types of choices on the church at Philadelphia that they had made. They were pressuring this church at Philadelphia and Jesus says, I know you have little strength. What he means there is this church was small in numbers and small in influence. They were not a large church and they were not an influential church. He says, I know you don't have a lot by human standards. And the Jewish community there, on the other hand, did have a lot. They had a lot of influence. They had a lot of people. They had a lot of power. And they were pressuring these Christians to do the same as they did. And as was often the case in the early church, Christians felt threatened when Jews didn't agree with them. You know, Jews had, had carried the history of God's people and his word. And so when the Jewish people did not approve of Christians, they, they kind of they gave them a pause. They thought, maybe we're not on the right track. And along with the political and economic pressure, the synagogue of, the synagogue of Satan was, was saying, you guys need to do what we're doing or you're not going to make it into heaven. That's why Jesus is saying to them, I'm the one that has the keys to heaven. Listen to me, follow me, trust me, stay faithful to me. Because at the end of the day, nobody else gets to decide that except Jesus. And he's the one that brings us into the kingdom of God. And so this church is small. It's struggling by every human standard. It is the weakest link. But you'll notice Jesus has nothing bad to say about this church. Jesus has only encouragement for this church. In fact, if there's one of the seven that he's the most positively disposed towards, it's probably the Philadelphian church with that Smyrna church as a close second. Because Jesus is not always impressed by 
the size of a community or their power or their influence. Those things are not impressive to Jesus. Which is why Jesus began his kingdom with no political authority, with not great numbers by cultural standards. He did everything wrong by human standards and yet built the greatest kingdom the world has ever seen. And it's important, I think, as we look at this passage to notice what Jesus values in his people so that we can value the same things. He doesn't, he doesn't value numbers and influence, but what he does value is inconvenient obedience. He says in, in verse 8, you obeyed my word and did not deny me. That they chose to obey Jesus over listening to the voices of their culture. They chose to obey Jesus rather than give in to pressure. They chose to hold on to the word of God, even when it was easy to question it. They did not give in to the pressures around them. And he says later in verse 10, he says, not only did you obey my word, but you obeyed my command to persevere, which by the way, is not a fun command. Anytime you're told to persevere, it's because tough things are coming, right? And he says, but you obeyed my command to persevere. And so Jesus is impressed by their obedience, even though they had every reason not to obey. Obedience is a funny thing, isn't it? None of us really like to be obedient. I have a dog who, who is, uh, he is a small, you know, the smaller the dog, the bigger the attitude. And I think that, I think the Lord gave me this dog to remind me of my own sinful nature because sometimes my dog does on the outside what I think internally I'm doing to God. When my dog, his name is Henry. I apologize if your name's Henry for naming my dog after a human name. I realized later the problems with that, but um, all that to say, Henry often snarls like full, he has frightened many people. He, he's not a biter, but he's a, he's a snarler. He has snarled many times when I've told him to do what he doesn't want to do. And you think, Caleb, you don't know how to train a dog. I don't think that, that you're right there. I think Henry may be, may be possessed by a spirit that's not of God. <laughs> and he may be the first dog that doesn't go to heaven. I don't know. Jeanette is interceding for him. She's believing for him. Uh, we're all hoping. We're all hoping he'll make a life-changing decision in the final hour. But he, he's 14 years old, so he doesn't have a lot of time left to come to Jesus. And uh, I have never seen a dog so rebellious, just so self-willed. And often, I, after moments of confrontation between me and the 10-pound dog, I'm reminded by the Holy Spirit, I think, that Jesus says, sometimes, Caleb, you do the same thing to me. Sometimes when the Holy Spirit said, Caleb, you need to do this, I give him more of a snarl than I do a, yes, Lord, I'd love to be obedient today. You know, we as human beings, our sinful nature, we don't love to be obedient. We don't like to be told what to do. And by the way, culturally, we're in a culture where individualism and independence is a value, this is a particular concern to us. We are people that like to tout our right to not be obedient. Right? We, we have a right to do what we want to do, which can be a really good thing. Freedom is a wonderful thing, except when we use it as license to be rebellious or damaging. And often, whether, you know, whatever that looks like for you, often we do that in our relationship with God. We find convenient reasons not to obey him. 
And it's always more convenient to do what we want in the moment than to do what we're told. Because if we didn't have to be told to do it, it would be convenient, right? And so Jesus values in this church inconvenient obedience. And I think with Jesus, we have to recognize that the one who is calling us to obey is different than any other human leader that we followed. Maybe you grew up in a home where obedience was demanded of you as a sign of respect. And if you didn't obey a certain way, then, then you were devalued as a person. Or maybe you've worked for bosses that, that uh, ruled with an iron fist and there was no way to keep them happy without uh, inc- intense servitude, right? Thankfully, none of us have, have lived in a nation where we've been oppressed to that level. And our, our, the church in America has, has been blessed by centuries of freedom. But that's not been the experience of the church worldwide throughout history. The thing in God's kingdom that's different is that obedience isn't about servitude. It's about trust. Obedience to God is about trusting that he actually knows better than we know. It's about trusting that he does have our best interest in mind, that he actually is better at loving us than we are at loving ourselves. We resent obedience to people because we think that they have a selfish motive and they don't care about us. God never does that. And if you wonder if that's true, all you have to do is look at the cross. It's to look and see a God who left heaven and laid his life down for you and me. And any questions about his desire to oppress you should go out the window. Obedience is about trust. It's about saying, you know what? The Bible tells me to do some things that our culture tells me are wrong, but who do I trust? The Bible tells me to do some things that are inconvenient for me, but who do I trust? The Bible tells me to rein in some of my passions and desires and interests. And it feels like if I just pursued those passions and desires and interests that I would end up a whole lot happier, but who do I trust? Obedience is really a question of trust. And that's why Jesus says, To his disciples in John 15, he says, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, that's going to be the true test. You'll trust me enough to obey me. And so Jesus values that obedience as a sign of trust and love. The second thing that Jesus values in his people at Philadelphia is their hard-fought faithfulness. He says again in in verse eight, he says, you didn't deny my name because that synagogue of Satan was pressuring them to deny the name of Jesus. They were saying he's a false Messiah. He's not the one. He's not true. He didn't do what you think he did. You need to deny the name of Jesus or you'll have no place in our businesses. You'll have no place in our communities. You will continue to be persecuted and oppressed in the city of Philadelphia. There was intense pressure to deny the very name of Jesus. And by the way, that is always a sign that the devil is at work. When we are asked as followers of Jesus to deny the name of Jesus as the one true God, that is always the last straw. That is always the one thing that we cannot do. We cannot deny the one whose name it is by which we are saved. The name of our God, the one who laid his life down for us. And the Philadelphian church, despite their weakness, resisted the urge and the pressure to deny his name. And they did, as he commended them, persevere 
in their faith. They persevered in faithfulness despite their suffering. And it's interesting to me that faithfulness is one of the virtues that gets the least amount of credit, but the most amount of verbiage in the Bible. We don't always, we pass by faithfulness. Faithfulness seems boring. It doesn't make a big splash. Faithfulness, it takes a long time to get there. It doesn't happen overnight. It's, faithfulness isn't like a, like a boom, a miracle that happens in a moment where we're like, wow, God. But I think faithfulness is one of the rarest and most beautiful things in all of human history. You know, faithfulness is not this, this attractive virtue, culturally speaking, but to God, I think faithfulness is incredibly attractive. You know, we often evaluate relationships by, you know, how does that couple look together? Or, you know, how much fun does that friendship have together? Or, you know, how well do they know each other? All those kinds of things, but those things can come and go in a moment. When you're wise, you learn to recognize that the true test of any relationship, friendships, romantic relationships, anything else, is really faithfulness. How long do they last? How many serious things have they gone through and stood the test? How committed are they to one another through thick and thin? That is the truly beautiful thing. And that's why I think that faithfulness is the ultimate masterpiece of godly relationships. Faithfulness is that prize that Jesus says, this is what is valuable. And that's why God from beginning of scripture to end says, I am faithful. We think, great God, you're faithful. That's wonderful. But no, God is saying, no matter what you do, I'm committed to you. No matter how much you rebel, I'm committed to you. No matter how much you say you don't want to follow me, I will continue to follow you. I love you. I'm committed to you. I've died for you. God is always faithful and he's looking for people who will be faithful to him. He's looking for a bride, scripture calls us, who will be faithful to him. Faithfulness is is not a sprint, it's a marathon or a tapestry. It's a work of art. It's an incredible accomplishment that takes much time in the making. That's why we honor marriages that have stood the test of 50 years or 60 years because that's no easy feat. I got to do a, a wedding in this room yesterday and, you know, the further you get from your own wedding, the more perspective you have, right? So I'm just getting a further, far enough along. I have a little bit of perspective, but you know, the goal is like 50, 60, 70 years, but you realize the first test of that relationship will be within a week of when it starts. <laughs> Everyone says happy honeymoon because we know there's potential for it to be, not be happy, right? Because human beings are set to be in conflict. We're, we're set to be independent. We're set to, to take care of number one, not to be faithful to God or to one another. So it's a work of art when faithfulness happens. That's why Jesus values it in his church. And so he says, I, I treasure your obedience. I treasure your faithfulness. And I want to ask you this morning, are the things that Jesus treasures, the things that Jesus values, are they the same things that we are striving for in life? Are you, are you thinking about, man, where's my obedience level to Jesus? I'm not talking about like your church attendance or are you doing all the Christian things you like to do? I'm talking about when's the last time you felt convicted about something and did something you didn't want to do? 
When's the last time that you read something in scripture and you're like, ooh, I probably shouldn't explain that one away. Probably shouldn't contextualize that one out of scripture. When's the last time that you had to be obedient to Jesus? And I'll just say, I still don't like being obedient. But when I see the fruit of obedience, I'm like, God, thank you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading me on a path of obedience. Thank you for leading me like a straying sheep. That's why we're sheep and he's a shepherd. Because obedience bears wonderful fruit in relationship with God. And and are you being faithful or are you kind of on these like, when I feel like it, relational spurts with God? Or are you walking faithfully with him when things are good and when things are are not so good. Those are meant to be the pursuits of life. When we're exhausted, when, when we're worn thin, when, when things are not good in life, Jesus isn't the thing to put on the back burner and say, I'll get back to my, my Bible reading. I'll get back to my prayer life. I'll get back to church. I'll get back to those things when it's convenient for me. No. Be faithful to Jesus. Be faithful to the one who's faithful to you. Relentlessly obey his word, even when it doesn't make sense to you, because Jesus has in store for us something far better than we can imagine. We we value everything based on what we can see, and Jesus says, you don't see enough to value things that way. You don't see far enough in front of you to know what's good for you. Trust me. Stay close to me. Be obedient and faithful. And I'll tell you what, church, this is not the time to let our faithfulness wane. This is not the time to slack off in our obedience. It's the time to grind closer, to go deeper, to dig further into who Jesus is and to want to be closer to him. And you know what? It's always the time. But there does come a time that's too late because Jesus says there's a test happening. But there's also an end to every test, right? And so if we're going to value the things that Jesus values, it's also important that we notice what Jesus has in store for his people. That Jesus has good things. What is supposed to be the fruit of our obedience, the fruit of our faithfulness? What is, what is the reward of this victorious life that Jesus keeps calling us to? The first thing that he says here, it's kind of confusing. He says, I see everything you do. I see your obedience. I see your faithfulness. And he says, and I've opened a door for you. You notice that in verse eight, I've opened a door for you. And it's a door for ministry. It's a door like he opened for the apostle Paul. It's a door for the gospel to be preached because sometimes our greatest moments of ministry happen in our worst moments of life. We don't even realize it. The greatest testimonies of our lives happen through our greatest sufferings. And what Jesus is going to do through the suffering of the Philadelphians is he's going to validate and vindicate the message that they are preaching. He's going to vindicate them and show them to be true. So what does he say? He says, you can't do anything about these people that are oppressing you. By the way, that's true oppression when you literally can't do anything about it. They could not raise a finger to stop the abuse that was happening to them. And Jesus says, I see what you're doing. I see your faithfulness and I'm going to open a door for you. And what does that door look like? He says, I'm going to force your persecutors to bow at your feet. That's a turnaround. 
I'm going to force the powerful. I'm going to force the rich. I'm going to force those that say they have a a heritage in Israel. I'm going to force those people. They will come and bow at your feet. And what Jesus is describing here is a miraculous opportunity. A miraculous opportunity that if they will be faithful to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, if they will be faithful to what Jesus has for them, that somehow the people that are oppressing them will see that and will turn to actually come and say, we need you. That picture of bowing at their feet is a picture of worship, not worship of them, but worship with them. What what Jesus is saying here is I'm going to turn those who are your persecutors into your family members in the family of God. They're going to come to you. And what does he say? I love that statement. He says, and they're going to see in verse nine, he says, they're going to acknowledge that you're the ones I love. The ones who hate them are going to have to acknowledge that they are the ones Jesus loves. When you are willing to be faithful and obedient in difficult circumstances, God uses your faithfulness and obedience to draw people to himself that you would never expect. He uses your faithfulness and obedience in suffering as a miraculous opportunity to turn the tables on the devil himself. Those in this passage who belong to Satan are going to belong to Jesus. Why? Because when we prioritize Jesus's mission in moments of suffering, it's a recipe for miraculous intervention. There are some strongholds that the devil owns in this world. And the Bible talks about strongholds as spiritual strongholds. There are things and places and people that the devil seems to have an irreversible hold on. And the only way to break through those strongest of the devil's strongholds is by the suffering of God and his people. There's something about suffering that breaks through, that breaks through the strongest walls of the enemy. I don't know why. It's like the chink in his armor. It's why Jesus came and his own suffering opened the door to salvation for the entire world. It's why throughout the New Testament, you see the apostles saying, don't be afraid of suffering. Suffering will come at times. Difficulty will come at times. Circumstances will not always go your way. And when they do, look out because God wants to do a miracle. Not always a miracle just for your blessing or to answer your personal prayer, but a miracle to bring another brother or sister into the family of God. That's why when the disciples were beaten for preaching the gospel, they praised God that the word was heard and they went out and preached some more. That's why when the apostle Paul and Silas were imprisoned for preaching the gospel, they sat in chains, their backs bleeding from being beaten, and they worshiped God until God did a miracle. And what was the result? More people got saved. Because in God's perspective, yes, he, he sees your suffering. We'll talk about that in a moment. He sees your suffering, but he also sees what really matters. And he says, you know what? Your short-term suffering could bring somebody else's eternal blessing. Your short-term struggle could bring eternal satisfaction for someone else if you are willing to see the opportunity in it and God will do the miracle in it. And so Sound Life Church, let's never be so confused or short-sighted. Let's not see with the eyes of the world, but when we face struggles, let's, let's dig deeper into obedience. Let's dig deeper into faithfulness. Let our suffering bring worship because in that moment is when God does an eternal miracle. It's in that moment when God, when the world sees us worshiping instead of whining, 
God does a miracle in that moment. And by the way, our society needs a lot less whining. And I think worshiping would be a good substitute. We have to prioritize his mission and then we'll see miracles. When it's all about us, it's hard to see a lot of miracles. When it's all about Jesus and his mission, that's where God says signs and wonders will follow you because you're on mission with him. That's not all he has in store for his people. He also has in store for us divine protection. You'll notice what he says. He says, because of your faithfulness, I will protect you through the time of testing that's coming on the whole world. And he says, and I'm coming soon. I hate to tell you, but Jesus said all those things like 2000 years ago. The time of testing started and it's still happening. The cycles of judgment and the cycles of testing on this world, the difficult things that we go through, they're meant to give people an opportunity to come to God. They're meant to bring salvation to people. They're meant to draw people to the one hope that can actually get them through. And those tests will continue to cycle through until a great tribulation and Jesus returns. That's the way, that's the way it works. And we're 2,000 years into that plan, still in the same plan. And Jesus said, I'm coming soon. He's still coming soon. As Jesus counts like 1,000 years, like, yeah, not a long time. So, you know, maybe he's like, I'll be there in a week, 7,000 years later. I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. We don't know. He says, you won't know the hour of the time. All we know is we can see signs of the times. We can see the test happening. And Jesus says, the one thing you need to know is I'm going to protect you through the test. I'm going to guard you through the test. What does that mean? It means that from eternal perspective, nothing can be taken away from you. It means that eternally, no matter how much you go through, no matter how much you suffer, Jesus is just, he's protecting your eternal treasure. He says, it's going to be worth it. I'm going to make it up to you. It's all going to be worth it. And he gives us exactly what we need in this life to get to that eternity. He will not give us less than what we need. Sometimes it's a lot less than what we thought we needed. It's a lot less than we would have picked for ourselves. And then other times it's so much more than we ever deserved. Jesus knows what we need and he has protection in mind for us. Why? Because God never forgets his people who don't forget him. He never forgets his people. You think you're forgotten. You think your prayers are not being answered. Jesus is just cheering you on. He's saying, be faithful. He says to you what he said to the Philadelphians. I see what you've done. I see what you're doing. I see your life and I have good things in store for you. Do not give up. Do not quit. Keep on going. He will not forget you. In fact, he has prepared for you this final thing that he has in store. And I want to sum it up in these words. The reward that God has for you is unrestricted access. To what? To this mysterious thing the Bible calls God's glory. His presence. The thing that everybody wanted in Israel. The closeness to God's presence. In fact, if you've ever tasted of God's presence, you know there's nothing else in the world like it. There's no, no amount of money, no amount of pleasure, no amount of whatever you want that can compare to the, the presence of God, to being, to tasting of his presence. And he says, that's just a taste of what I have for you. 
He has unrestricted access for those who are victorious. So he says, hold on because I don't want you to lose your crown. Part of God's glory is sharing authority that we do not deserve with us because he wants to welcome us as kings alongside him. Part of that authority says, I'm going to make you pillars in my temple. Do you know what the pillars are the important part of the temple? They hold the roof up. The pillars are the part that cannot be moved. The pillars are the parts that always get to be there. You know, the priests got to come and go into God's presence in the temple occasionally. The pillars stay there all the time. He says, if you will be faithful and obedient, I will give you a permanent place in the most intimate of places, the closest place to my goodness and to my glory. There is nothing closer than this. And he says, and I will give you my name my family. And he says, I will make you citizens in my city. Because in the Roman empire, citizenship could be granted or revoked. And you had rights and protection based on whether you were granted citizenship or your citizenship was revoked. And that was often held against Christians of the day. And Jesus says, I have a citizenship for you in my city, a city that will last forever, a city that's marked by my presence And so Jesus has in store for us something. You know, the only thing I hate preaching about the reward that God has for us is there are no human words to paint the picture for what God has in store for you. That's why Jesus has to say at the end, he says, I hope you have ears to hear what my spirit's saying. Because we need to have spiritual ears to even have a sense that what God offers for us is better than what we could get for ourselves. But when we do have ears to hear, what we hear is that there is no torture or temptation that can compare with the wealth of unhindered relationship with our God. There is nothing. There is no amount of pain that can compare with the amount of goodness God has in store for you. And there is no amount of pleasure that can compare with how much goodness God has in store for you. And so when we go through those seasons, when we wonder, is it worth it? Is is it going to be worth it? Is there going to be anything good in all of this? You know, is this, why God are you punishing me? And God's saying, I'm not punishing you. I'm rewarding you. I'm storing up for you miracles. I'm storing up for you treasure. I'm storing up for you intimacy. Trust who I am and be obedient and faithful. And when we do, We see the end. And I want to say to you this morning, whatever test or trial God has in your life right now, it is worth it. Be obedient to Jesus. Be faithful to Jesus. Prioritize those things above all else, above all other things. Prioritize those things. And you will not regret it. You won't regret it. And you will look back. How many decades do you have left to live? I mean, none of us actually know, but at most, decades. At most, decades. So decades from now, you will look back and be like, wow, God, thank you for letting me walk through those tests. Wow, God, thank you for giving me opportunity for obedience and faithfulness. Wow, God, thank you. And then, not for decades, not for centuries, not for thousands of years, but for eternity, it will be worth it. Doesn't that sound like a good deal? And that's what Jesus is reminding the Philadelphian church of. That's what he's reminding us of today. Would you bow your heads with me and pray?
Father, I simply ask for us as your church this morning that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit's saying to us, Lord, as a community, but you'd also give us ears to hear what you're saying to us as individuals. Lord, I pray that you would give us a sensitive spirit to where there is sin in our lives and the one who is holy and true wants to lead us out of slavery to sin and into your righteousness. Father, lead us into obedience. Strengthen us to be faithful. Let us be a church that you can point to as one that you're going to open doors for ministry for because we've been faithful and obedient. Let us be individuals that you can say, I'm going to open doors for miraculous opportunities because you've been faithful. Lord, let us be those kinds of people. Let us trust in your divine protection. And let us keep our eyes on the unhindered, unrestricted access to your presence that you are promising us. You are so good. Help us to trust you enough to follow you through everything and anything that we will face until that glorious day when we get to stand there with you, bearing your name, citizens of your city, pillars in your temple. Thank you for it, Father, because nothing can stop what you do. Nothing can close what you have opened and our trust is in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.